Hello and welcome to That Geek Pod. I'm Catherine and today I have a very good friend, Matt Frost from the Peppa Pig Podcast. How are you going, Matt? Hi, Catherine. Thanks for having me on. Oh, thanks for coming on. Um, yeah, the Peppa Pig Podcast, only one of its kind. About my favourite podcast. About Peppa Pig. <laughs> No, it's great, and and I notice all the Peppa Pig merch and stuff out there in the world, and all the all the Peppa Pig references everywhere. But no, it's a fantastic, a fantastic um, podcast, and you've built a wonderful universe around it. Yeah, it's uh, it's oh, it's it's very good fun. Um... It's it's interesting talking about Peppa Pig when we our kids have nearly aged out of it. That's um, uh, Sloney's probably hanging in there by a thread. So which is um, my co-host Josh's youngest. But yeah, it'd be interesting to see how we go for the next season. So yeah, no, no, it's good fun. Yeah, yeah. Now today we thought we'd talk about. Uh, you know, some literary adaptations, you know, from book to screen, as it were. You know, Peppa Pig went the other way from screen to book. Yeah, there's a few uh, excellent, um, let's call them novelizations and not books, uh, <laughs> of some of the uh, the real classic Peppa episodes. So, yeah, yeah, obviously uh, literature and, and film and television go both ways, but yeah, I, I know that you're a huge uh, Jane Austen fan. Um, so, yeah, um, it's interesting to see the stuff that goes from from the page into into popular culture. Yeah, yeah, like you know, being a big Jane Austen fan, you know, I've seen a lot of the adaptations, but obviously they're being adapted in very many different ways, like Clueless being Emma for instance, and there's an Indian or a number of Indian Pride and Prejudices and all these modern adaptations that have been made based on the story. And, of course, Pride and Prejudice is the classic from haters to lovers, you know, Raylo, um, all the way. You know, so Jane Austen, she's a Raylo. And it's also interesting that um, Pride and Prejudice – uh, and and a lot of those Jane Austen stories have been uh, adapted into both period pieces and modern times, like you said with with Clueless. And I've seen Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, like so they've been made into genre picks and stuff like that. So it goes to show if you've got like a really really solid text with some good good you know themes and ideas, um, kind of gives people a bit of a playground to to adapt it in all sorts of different ways. Yeah, Pride and Prejudice is so beloved. Elizabeth Bennet and Mr. Darcy are just such wonderful classic characters and, and all time. Um, over this you know, summer break, I discovered, well, a few YouTube channels, one of which takes the, a scene or, you know, from a bit of the Jane Austen text and has from several adaptations, one after the other, the other after the other of 
of that scene, as it were. So from the 1940, I think it is, Pride and Prejudice with Laurence Olivier and, um, oh, I've forgotten her name, um, Gria Garson, an Italian miniseries, a Dutch miniseries from like, both of them are like from the 50s, a early, no, sorry, 67 English adaptation, a 1980s English adaptation, of course, the classic 1995 Colin Firth adaptation and the 2005 adaptation. And there's been so many other interpretations over the years, but the fact that you can see these scenes interpreted in different ways and in different languages, it goes to show it's not just a classic English story, it's a, it's a worldwide classic. Yeah, it's good to see too that, um, say, there's, it's one thing to change the setting of a story, like, and, and Shakespeare's a pretty interesting, before we get into the real super pop culture versions of it and stuff like that, Shakespeare's a great example, like, you know, um, and Jane Austen, like the, the, the uh, typical approach is to do it fairly faithful. Um, you know, um, and then there's the approach to, to update it. Um, you know, so I'm thinking, even though I, I don't actually like it, like Baz Luhrmann updated Romeo and Juliet to a very hyper pop culture sort of version. Um, you know, Pride, Prejudice and Zombies very much updated that Colin Firth adaptation. That was, that was set in modern times, wasn't it? No. No, oh, sorry. No. Apologies. Yeah, I'm not really – This is gonna, I'm going to reveal myself to not be <laughs> a Jane Austenite. Um, um, but, you know, then Othello, that's an interesting one. It's been, you know, you know set, set in, like, modern military times. It's been set in a high school, all sorts of things. So, yeah, uh, you know, these really strong writings get – you know, and I think that's when it gets really interesting is when it gets updated into a into a pop culture world that, and then probably engages some people, some fans that, that might not have been paying attention to English in high school. Yeah, Othello is an interesting one because there's such interesting themes there that can be explored in many settings. But over time, you know, our understanding of Othello has changed and also you know, who can play the, the roles and, and how it gets played. Um, you know, obviously, we wouldn't have actors in blackface as they may have done in Shakespeare's time or, you know, 100 years ago, maybe even 50 years ago or less. <laughs> Yeah, true. Yeah. Um, but it's funny, though, that we do – there's certain anachronisms that as like an – I'll call myself an Austenite um, – we react against to. So, for instance, Netflix did an adaptation of Persuasion a couple of years ago with Dakota Johnson. And uh, now Persuasion is – Jane Austen's final novel. It is you know, far more introspective and the main um, character of Anne is a far more sort of quiet back, 
quiet, reserved type of character. And but it's a very beautiful novel in you know and the yearning and just it's it's lovely. But this adaptation, it was set in Regency times, but they didn't understand who Anne was. They tried to make her Elizabeth Bennet. And it's like that's a betrayal. <laughs> that's wrong. Yeah, that, that that's probably one of the real good things I want to actually talk to you about is about adaptations and, and, and literary to the page because sometimes you can choose to and and this is the art of adapting something is that you can choose to keep the setting mm. and you might want to ch- change the themes. And that's where people get really sensitive because you've changed the theme and the meaning of the, the source material. But you can actually come up with some – and if you're really attached to that source material, like say you might be with, with that particular novel or say I might be with a Stephen King novel or something like that, can really take you aback that they've they've kept the setting and the story, but they've actually changed the themes mm. of the, the thing. And um, I think that's really interesting. It's like a cover song, like changing the genre or, mm. um, you know, uh, changing the, 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 um, the perspective of the piece or whatever. And that, that's where it gets super interesting, whether something's just taken the, taken the story and updated it they've taken the whole thing and tried to do a a really faithful adaptation of it or whether they've they've just gone we're just going to take the story and we're actually going to change the themes up completely to Mm. say something different yeah well with austin it's funny looking at some of the different adaptations what they've emphasized i mean obviously if you have a longer miniseries as opposed to a film you know, films will cut a lot of things out. It's always interesting with films to see, well, what do they cut out and what do they skip over? But it's also interesting to see what different adaptations will focusing on and make and emphasise. So like the 2020 Emma with Anatolia Joy, they, you know, how they made Emma... Unlikable is always too strong a word, I find. Like Jane Austen wrote her to be unlikable, but she's not. Uh, but you certainly get the snobbishness of Emma in that version that you don't get in in some of the other versions. So it's interesting, you know, how each adaptation can focus on different things. I think, though, how, however you adapt a, a book, it's got to be true to the characters. You've got to find a sense of truth. So even if you change something, there's got to be the, the characters still have to remain themselves as it were. So I've, after a few years of stamping my foot and going, I'm not going to watch it, I watched Bridgerton and, of course, I loved it. Um now that was that is adapted from a big book series which I haven't read, but I have reading online seen that they made changes to what happens in the second season, like some certain order of events and in some ways what happened. And 
like I haven't dived deep into the Bridgerton fan base, but it sort of seemed like the changes were still true to the characters, but they it was perhaps a bit better story-wise or more interesting story-wise what they did um, and interesting theme-wise, but they didn't change the essence of who, you know, we, the fans sort of saw the characters as or were. Um, so it's that you've got to be really careful not to, yeah, you know, piss off the fans as it were because, yeah, the uproar from people over this Netflix adaptation and I admit I was looking forward to it the cast list I went oh that's really interesting that looks really good I watched it and it it had obviously the producers has seen Fleabag um I went yep we're gonna have some of that and we're gonna have some of that we're gonna have some of that and it ended up being completely wrong like they they changed her into this outspoken, um, feisty, getting into awkward scrapes person that she wasn't. And so that's, yeah. Can I, I put a counterpoint to that? Yeah. Is that you can change whatever you want, but you have to have a plan for it. Mm. So the idea there was be you can actually shake up whatever you want about an adaptation. But if you change something, you can't rely, therefore, on any sort of like eventual denouement or anything of the the character that relies on that thing that you've changed. Yeah. So change whatever you want. And there's, there's so many different examples of um, really successful adaptations that changed almost everything. Like think about Dracula, Frankenstein, yeah. um, uh, Homer's Odyssey, like that change all sorts of things that stick to the basic plot of the thing, or even they change the plot. But but if, if you ch- what you can't do is rely on a really well-known story, an adaptation that has some sort of denouement at the end where the character learns something or whatever like that, but you've changed something irrevocably early on about that character that then you can't rely on later yeah. to make part of the story. So it's almost like if you want to change something, commit to the bit and, and go the whole way. Yeah. And then 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 whether people like it or not, it doesn't matter, but you haven't been lazy and relied on any sort of, you know, sort of well-being of the story to get your point across. You sort of have to have to make your own point. That and and you know, Sort of my my real background of that would be, like you know, Stephen King's novels being adapted by very prominent filmmakers, and they've gone in completely different ways from the the themes or the the core story of the novel. But some of them just commit to the thing, and they actually make something that's as good or or you know even better than the source material. Yeah. So I've read The Shining. But I know I'm I'm a philistine, <laughs> and not seen the film. <laughs> oh. See, but but you know, so there's there's a few different there's two ad- adaptations out of it now. One that's you know, approved by Stephen King himself, and one that was 
done by standard Kubrick's, except it is one of the, the best horror movies ever made. But the, they changed something fundamentally. Like he just, Kubrick changed something fundamentally about the character right from the get-go. So, you know, um, the, in the book, like you've read the book, the, yep. the character of Jack is, you know, like somebody who's an alcoholic, who's done bad things, who's, you know, physically abused his son. He's trying desperately to move on, on with that and he fights a losing battle against a, a, you know, a dark force that, that haunts a hotel. Whereas, you know, Kubrick's film isn't that story. It's not that story. It's, it's something slightly different. Like, you know, it's, you know, Jack isn't really set up as sort of like a sympathetic character who's trying to make good at all. He's more of a selfish man, you know, who's, who is obviously going to fall prey and doesn't, doesn't try to make good at the end. Like, you know, so it's, it's quite different. Um, but the setting, the, the plot beats and stuff all remain largely the same. Um, but uh, it's quite a, quite a haunting visual film. And it works really well. Um, there's a similar one, like a you know the his Stephen King's famous haunted car film, Christine, um, adapted really early on. So when the manuscript was out, it was already was not even published. It was already being adapted. So that's you know how quickly things move like ch change from adapting Shakespeare from hundreds of years ago this was being adapted within before it was even published um, and that went from that changed the car from being like a, a vessel that was possessed by its owner to a car that was born evil off, off the assembly line you know but you know it worked for the adaptation like it worked in yeah. the confines of that that um, that movie um, and it was probably easier to depict that than it would be to depict a car that was possessed by its former owner that was then possessing its new owner. That's yeah. a hard thing to show in a movie. So, yeah, it's... Yeah, it's I, I'm trying to remember, um, William Goldman, who wrote The Princess Bride, but also adapted a couple of Stephen King things, I think, like Misery. Mm -hmm. He adapted that. And I think in his one of his books he talked about, yeah, adapting a novel to a screen and what works on the page may not work on the screen and, and how but how you can change things to convey the, the same, yeah, to get to the same place but maybe in a slightly different route because it just didn't work that way. So the hobbling scene, he, he ended up having to change that from from what happened in the book to then what happened in the movie. Um, yeah, yeah, was, yeah, that's a that's a great example in that um, the beats of that story remain very um, very faithful yeah so she actually chops his foot off in the yeah. in the book but and where where that happens and when is slightly different um but what 
probably what uh, Goldman was really dealing with is all the inner monologue of the character. Yeah. So it's so much is the guy's inner thoughts um, about uh, Annie Wilkes, who's looking after him and stuff like that. So he had to change that from like because there's no there's no voiceover or anything in that film at all. No. So all the inner thinking that that character had to do, Sidney Sheldon, I think his name is, um, had to be shown. So he yeah. took the it's a it's actually a masterful screenplay in that because it's taken all the the thinking and you can actually think along with that that character like because yeah. he's written the dialogue so tight that um, you you. you you go along with that 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 lead character. You don't need the inner monologue because you're like seeing it for yourself. I'm like she's she's a bit weird. She's a bit quirky. She's not right. She's crazy. Like, and you're seeing it all through his eyes, but you're not having to have a voiceover or anything tell you. Yeah. It's all shown. Yeah, it's amazing to think what a fantastic movie that is. Because yeah, the book is all. In a monologue with a with some dialogue, obviously with Annie Wilkes, but then you also got the story he's writing, his frustrations of writing, his frustrations of writing with a a broken typewriter, um, and yeah. and all of that. Yeah, there's like a, um, a a sub commentary on Stephen King trying to break out of his own his own mold. Like, you know, so Stephen King's writing about a writer and he's writing about himself at the same time. So there's, there's like actually layers and layers and layers. But to boil all that down and all that self-reflection that's present in the novel, to write that down and boil it down to a, a screenplay, um, regardless of how it turned out, because it was, I think it was Rob Reiner that made that? Yeah, think so. Either way, it's got James Kahn and Kathy Bates in it. Who yeah. They they found it really hard, hard to actually, because they wanted a, a pretty recognised um, actor to play that role of yeah. Sheldon, but they couldn't really convince. I think they tried for Robert Redford and maybe Gene Hackman. But, but those guys yeah. were not going to be in that weak position for a whole film. No. So it's good that they found somebody as good as James Kahn to have a go at it. Yeah, I think I remember from, again, this book that Goldman wrote that you know, James Kahn in some ways was a great bit of casting because he's such he was such a physical actor. You could almost sense his you know, frustration at being stuck in this Prime. bed. Yeah. Well, it's a very, very good movie. Um, oh, yeah. And it's uh, probably gets forgotten with the every single AFL sportsman naming Shawshank Redemption as their favourite film <laughs> and, you know, you know, Stand By Me getting such a run. Not that those are bad films or whatever, but Misery is an absolute cracker if you're, if you're looking for a Stephen King ad- adaptation. Yeah, like... There's a reason why Kathy Bates won that Oscar. Oscar, yeah, and and dominates everything. Like 
but she's amazing in that film. And I don't think she'd really done any films up until then. She'd basically been a stage actor, I think. I think they found her. I think she'd done a couple of bit parts, yeah. But, um, yeah, she was a long way from being um, like a, a movie star. I can't remember. They were actually after Bette Midler, um, <laughs> believe it or not. That would have been a different film. Can I bring up another one, um, yeah. another attitude? to So you've got the faithful adaption, the faithful adaption, but updating the setting. You've got the faithful ad- adaptation um, with a few twists and then you've got an adaptation where you change some themes up. And then there's like um, one I saw recently. I know you haven't seen this, but it's up, sort of a, adapted Edgar Allan Poe's greatest hits into a mini-series called The Fall of the House of Usher, which is the name of one of his, his you know, might be a novella, that one. It's not very long. Um, but basically it, it, it does something different as an adaptation is it sort of just brings in elements of all of his most famous works into a mini-series, but, but doesn't, it's not really supposed to be a faithful adaptation of any of them. But it largely keeps to the themes of all of them. So that's like a, that's a delicate dance. (laughs) That's, you know, but but one that's done well. Um, And yeah, so it's, it's, it's good that I bring that one up. And as I said, I know you haven't seen it, but there's, there's just all these different ways you can approach adapting something. Um, and there's some really safe ways and some really out there ways like that one. Um, I guess you'd, you'd say that um, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies is out there too, but it's not really because it doesn't really change the story, does it, too much? I don't think. I can't remember. Hey, did you watch it? I find zombies too scary. Oh, okay. <laughs> I know I should, I should, like bright daylight someday, I should watch it and just close my eyes. But yeah, I did last night, for whatever reason, watch The Lincoln Lawyer, that movie that's based on a book um, by the same author who does all the Bosch books. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, you know, that's sort of, I don't want to say pulp, but, you know, those, um, kind of or airport novels type of things that sort of genre of literature like hard, the reacher hard books boiled, hard-boiled crime i think yeah. sometimes they're called yeah. yeah oh look you make fun of them at your at your peril you know i don't like, I, I i i like them yeah yeah there's nothing uh when i traveled a lot i used to buy a lot of those sort of trashy things that i thought well they're, yeah they're not even that trashy like that you can read really quickly. Um, I found some of them, and there's two Australian authors that wrote, got into that particular genre that will remain remain anonymous. I'm not going to, we're not here to bag out stuff like that, but neither of these got adapted either, but they were, oh, actually one might have. Anyway, I can't do that without naming them, but but they 
were clearly writing the novel as a fantasy about them being crime fighters. Like yeah. one was a, she was a model and she was a crime fighting model who was solving things. And the yep. other one was like a backpacker and who'd done a lot of travel and he was, he was a backpacker that was solving crimes. And I was just like, oh, like Stephen King writes as a writer, like he writes his protagonist as a writer quite a bit. So it's the same criticism, but you know when criticism is a lot easier to land because it's so awful and so obvious. It's uh, yeah, yeah. They're literally no different from their own selves. Yeah. So. Well, you write what you know, right? Yeah, but you just got to just remove it by one step, yeah. <laughs> even a half step. <laughs> <laughs> That's how bad these two novels were. <laughs> wanting to return them to the airport bookstore. Yeah. <laughs> oh, like like those little libraries you find on the on the streets if you walk around, those little free libraries that people have got set up. Yeah. You can just return them to there. Yeah, and the the amount of books that I've burnt through from those things. So, yeah, um, another good example of uh, two famous, famous movies that that some people might not be aware of were books first is Psycho and Jaws, two of the most... Psycho, I didn't know. No, so, yeah, both Psycho and Jaws were were adaptations of novels. Jaws was kind of one of those sort of, you know, the shark as the failure of the American dream sort of half novels, you know, Mm. like, which I sound a bit weary of that, but some of the best novels ever written about are about the failure of the American dream and then, you know, they're awesome. And this, but this wasn't a particularly great novel, but geez, it had a good hook, like, you know, kill a shark. Um, Yeah. Great title. Yeah. Yeah. And the um the movie was not really the book. Like it wasn't the the feeling of the whole thing wasn't the same. But it was a, a magnificent movie. It's a it's a decent read of a book, but my god, it's not a it's not like a classic had to be recreated into a film. And that was another one got optioned very, very early and uh, made into a film. And Psycho, yeah, that was yeah, that was a pretty pretty noteworthy novel that got um, made into a movie. But, yeah, they didn't see eye to eye with how the story was supposed to go on from that point. So the the novels went off and had their own sequels and the movies went off and had their own sequels. Um, but the, the it's a pretty reasonably faithful sort of adaptation, Psycho. Yeah. Yeah. That's oh, interesting. Yeah, it's um, but the, and uh, another one that that came to mind too when I was thinking about this was um, one of the most famous, like you know, films of its time. Like was Doctor Strangelove. Yeah. Have you seen that? The the 
black satire comedy about you know nuclear war. Yeah, uh, yeah, that was that was an adaptation too. Oh, so Kubrick has a um, has a well, is Eyes Wide Shut an adaptation of something? Uh I couldn't get through that film, uh, so no. yeah, I don't don't actually know, but. But Strange Doctor Strangelove was an adaptation of uh, Red Alert, which was, and it has the same plot, but it's written seriously, so yeah. it's not written as a satire. So somebody else ripped off Red Alert and made a movie called Failsafe, which is sort of like, <laughs> you know, and it came out just before Doctor Strangelove. Like, so that was not a. So this, the author that wrote. Red Alert was r- right into Kubrick's idea of adapting it as something new and as a satire. Yeah. But somebody else adapted the story without the writer's blessing and made a serious film called Failsafe at the same time. It's pretty interesting stuff. But yeah, like, you know, Kubrick, he was pretty famous for adaptations like Lolita. Like, yeah. Yeah, that was. That is not a book I've read, and it just doesn't seem like, like through a modern lens, like a feel like a book I want to read. No. You know, but, but at the same time, like, why shouldn't a book like that be read, and why shouldn't it be adapted? Like, there's lessons to learn. Like, I think we want movies now where heroes are heroes, and everyone wears white hats and black hats, but. Hopefully we're coming around to a time where we can watch movies that have really complex and quite often shitty people in them and, and they are popular again. Emma 2020 is quite popular and she's complex and has sometimes not very nice behaviour. Yeah. I'm just saying. Yeah, it's um, – I think I uh, – another apt- adaptation about um, – Movie. I don't know if you've seen it. It's called Leave the World Behind. Oh, no, got, I haven't seen got, it. It's got um, Julia Roberts and Ethan Hawke and Marshala Ali in it. Um, oh, I don't think so. But that's Ethan an adaptation Hawke. of a book. Okay. Um, and, yeah, watching through that on your first go, you're like, all these people are shit. Um, but it's actually a weirdly, weirdly optimistic novel and adaptation. That's a very super faithful adaptation. Um, but yeah, it's, it's sort of, it's got all these shit people and it's like these shit people learn to be good in a really, um, robust way in that. You know they're they're tried and they become shittier and then they pull themselves out of it. But yeah, um, so yeah, there's always good hope for for things. But it's such a um, such a mine of for for movies is to go to books. So yeah, I'm glad they're still doing it. Yeah. Well, I think they're making. I think I read somewhere they're going to make another adaptation of Sherlock Holmes. Now, <laughs> Elementary, the one set in New York with Johnny Lee Miller, 
and um, Lucy Liu, I absolutely adore. Um, but that was made at a, basically the same time, a very similar time to Sherlock with Benedict Cumberbatch, which took itself you know, a bit more seriously and, and did try to update or you know, adapt some of the stories from the original novels, um, whereas Elementary took a couple of little winks, but really it was far more loosey-goosey uh, with things. But I'm sorry, Elementary was fun. It did have the, you know, people complaining, oh, Watson's a woman now. It's like, so? It, it, but what was interesting about both adaptations was the frustration that people felt with Sherlock that I don't think you got from the original novels, that you got what it would be like to be friends or acquaintances with Sherlock, that it's a frustrating experience to to be with that type of person who is a know-all, basically. Do you think that, um, and that's uh, that can be, you can extrapolate that to characters like great British characters like James Bond mm. and, you know, Sherlock Holmes. They were made out to be very heroic and idealised in their adaptations. But as you get further on down the road, um, more more complicated characters become more popular. So uh, you might look at someone like House from that miniseries and say, well, something yeah. like House happens and so then you can make a more complicated Sherlock Holmes where people, you can see people's frustration with a brilliant person. Right? And so I love how um, modern original ideas allow us to interpret old characters better or different or it doesn't yeah. actually matter because um, a lot of that stuff like you know James Bond was like a pretty hard-boiled I've read a few of the, the original novels he's a pretty hard-boiled character he wasn't very sympathetic like he certainly wasn't a quippy guy or anything like that but you know he was rewritten like that to make him popular and you know because people love you know Indiana Jones and all that sort of stuff it's um, so, but, but yeah, that, that more complicated interpretations in original media help us interpret older characters, maybe more like their written versions. But it's funny with, um, the Daniel Craig Bond, I think they've tried to bring that complexity a bit back. So, although yes, he will say the odd one-liner there is a through line of storyline and a depth to the character that you didn't get in, I'm going to say, most of the other uh, versions of Bond. I haven't seen Timothy Dalton ones, although I heard some things with the Timothy Dalton ones. I've seen... I've seen one of them. I think I've seen it's... The Living Daylights. Mm. It's actually pretty good. Yeah. So, I think I think he was a bit of an effort to actually do a bit of a Daniel Craig, yeah, that that kind of failed. 
so um, call him Proto Craig. Because <laughs> then Pierce Brosnan came on with Golden Eye, and Golden Eye is just a cheese spectacular. I love that movie. I, was, I love I was, it so much. I was waiting on your description of that with bated breath because <laughs> I I don't love all the Brosnan films, but look, they were sort of what they were. And at the time, I loved them. And whenever I've caught them since, I'm like, yeah, I still love it. But, you know, it's a different flavour of cheese. Like, you know, if if, um, if uh, Roger Moore was Gruyere, uh, you know, maybe maybe Brosnan was a Brie or something. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, it's all cheese. Um, oh. but, 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 hey. Great work to go after that just to do a bit of a reset and go, ah, we're just going to give it a whole thing a different flavour. Um, and not all the Daniel Craig films are great that I've seen. Anyway, I haven't seen all of them. But not not all of them are great either. No. But um, take a swing. Yeah, Quantum of Solace. Look, that there was a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff going on. I think that was done during a writer's strike, so, you know, fairly relevant. Um, but, yeah, it's yeah, – that's, that's one that a lot of people sort of forget is an adaptation. Like there was a, a character, an original character, and they used the novels for a lot of the, like, Sean Connery bonds and mm. – and then they had to go off on their own. Yeah, I, I think that's fine too. Like, I don't think you should be like because there's a lot of like I've never seen an episode of Game of Thrones, but they got to the point where the the author wasn't going to write the end of the story, so they had to finish it off some way, and that and that's actually fine. I don't, yeah. I think the the worst thing about like written word is just don't get too precious about it. Like, you know, I if somebody is committed to something, it deserves your attention. Like, so if they're committed to, you know, Stephen King has this thing where he 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 lets anyone or he, it's I think it's expired now, but he used to let anyone make a film a non-profit film, like, so a student film, out of any one yeah. of his movies, as long as they gave him, sent him a money order for a dollar. And so they, it, they were his dollar babies. And it's just like, the idea was go hog wild. Like, and, yeah. and I think that's a really great idea to adapting anything in the, like, as long as you've got an idea and you, you are trying to say something or do something, you know, you should be able to do it and people should give it a fair shake. It's, it's, if, you're, if you're doing something for no other reason that it's a cash grab, well, I think you should be, you should be subject to harsh criticism. But if you're trying to create something and say something new with an adaptation of something, how to you? Now, have you watched The Expanse? 
or read The Expanse novels? No. Uh, is that is that a similar concept to Annihilation? Because that's a book too, isn't it? So The Expanse is set a few hundred years in the future where humans have now populated you know, Mars, number of other planets or moons around planets and the um, asteroid belt and you know people live there and and there's tensions between the earthers and the belters and and into this they a small group get exposed to a um alien proto module proto Pressure um, molecule, and then it all goes from there. It's like nine novels and a whole lot of novellas. Um, And it was adapted initially by, I think, the Sci Fi Channel, and it was cancelled after two seasons. But Jeff Bezos went, No, I like this show and I like these books. And so he brought it over to Prime and funded it and it's it's made six seasons. I think it's finished now, but, yeah, it's like the thing of, yeah, if I was a billionaire, I'd do stuff like that too. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Like, I want want this thing to be a thing, so I'm going to make it so. But there's worse ways to spend your money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's- Lisa is supporting a creative endeavor, whether it's good or not, doesn't really matter. Um, I think um, I think if somebody's financing something like that, they'd want a pretty faithful adapt- adaptation. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. Um, the first book got a- adapted into the first two seasons, and I have to say, I agree with that choice because there's a lot of stuff happening in that first book um, and some of, you know, one of the best, I mean, I love the characters in The Expanse and, but, yeah, that first book has got, although like one of the best characters um, and they stray more from the books in the subsequent seasons, but part of that was just because, okay, they could start to bring in these characters from the other books and have more parallel timelines and, pardon the pun, but expand the story Um, because, yeah, they would all meet up eventually, so it was good to to build up these characters before. Um, And then towards the end they've change things because um, they had to fire an actor um, and so they changed things so that they could kill him off. Um, but the actual way that they visualised this story was amazing because it takes place, so much of it takes place on on um, the astro on where they've made these bases in the asteroids or other places where there's low gravity. So they're able to communicate that it's low gravity with the way that 
um, fluids move and how they move in the, the spaceships and things, which is hard to do. Like even now, it is a very hard thing to do, especially on like a television budget. It's not like Star Trek where they've got, you know, artificial gravity and all of that. No, they don't have any of that. It's um, low gravity, no gravity. Sometimes they'll have like six Gs because they're under acceleration, but it's a really great visualisation of of the stories and the X stories are great. X, yeah, the characters are great. It's really great. Catherine says great ten times. <laughs> it's 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 funny. So that's an example of something that's pretty difficult to film. Mm. But they've they've managed to because there's all these unfilmable adaptations that you know people have notoriously had a go at. I remember Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy was known mm. as being unfilmable. Um, really modern one, Gerald's Game by Stephen King, known as unfilmable. Uh, can you think of any others? Um, I think I'm going to kick myself afterwards here because I know there have been a few lately that they thought was unfilmable until technology basically came along. And sometimes to... the text too, like Life of Pi, there's another good one. Yeah. Um, but these have all been successfully uh, adapted. But, yeah. Um, but it's like there's either a technical limitation or a just it's just in the text um, that you you can't do it. Um, the st- uh, yeah, the stand by Stephen King, Dark Tower. They they've all been sort of thought of. They've been adapted now, but they were always sort of pretty hard. But yeah, and that's where that's where creativity comes into it when you've got something like The Expanse or something that's like a yeah. really long Annihilation. That was another one like that. You know, um, people said that was un, unfilmable and un, unadaptable. Um, but but yeah, that's that's where creativity's got to and where changes have got to be made. Like, there's no way you can do it um, as it is. Yeah. Yeah, so in the expanse, in the novels, there's a a thing talked about with the belters because they've grown up in low gravity. They're always talked about as being taller and more elongated than people who've grown up down the gravity well, Um, earthers and people from Mars. Uh, But they really did, couldn't show that much in in the in the show uh, because obviously we don't have humans that look like that. Um, and, and I guess you have to make a choice there. Is it important to show as as a difference, or can we show the difference another way, or yeah. by character or something like that? Dune is another one that mm. used to be thought of as unfilmable, but I'm not really familiar with that that universe. Um, but yeah, it's sometimes you get so caught up on uh, detail of a body of work where you're like, um, how, do, how do we show this? 
and you put all this time and effort into thinking how do we show this, but it's not actually really important. Um, something like, say, the hobbits being smaller than everybody else in the Lord of the Rings. Like, that was really important. Yeah. And they found a way to do it. But, <laughs> you know, some other things probably weren't so important um, in, and they probably chose not to do it. You know, like the way certain characters speak or whatever like that. Like, is it really important or do we just have them speak normally, you know? Like, um, that's where you've just got to pick and choose, like, what's what's important. Because you can't, you can't have something that's... Mo- most books, if you make them 100% accurate, will be very, very boring films or series, so... Because they're just a different experience. Yes, even my beloved 1995 Pride and Prejudice, they changed the order of the letter that Darcy sends to Elizabeth to make it because they thought it it felt more realistic. Yes. Because, <laughs> yeah, I, I, there's another Janelson channel where they've taken clips from all the adaptations to have it verbatim. Verbatim, word for word, <laughs> as close as possible. But what, what's at the end of the day, what's the point? Like, I think it's just for that person an yeah. exercise to see sure. yeah. what it was like. And it's interesting that there's certain chunks that you know, really only the, like the 1995 and 1980 miniseries the rest weren't, you know, as verbatim. And then it's surprising sometimes that, you know, the one, the 1940 Pride and Prejudice, which I think veers away in some crazy ways, um, will have an occasional just line of dialogue, these word for word from the text. It's like, oh, okay. But it's just, for, I think, an interesting look at, because we all think that the 1995 is is almost verbatim, but there are it does stray sometimes to just fit the character or to have things moving along. So um, yeah, it's just interesting little bit of fun for that person. Yeah, I think I think that's a good way to describe it. It's it's just. Yeah, you just never want your own love for a particular, you know, source material to to sort of cloud too much your enjoyment of an adaptation of it. Man, that can be hard sometimes. And Jane Austen never wrote Mr. Darcy coming out of a lake in a wet shirt. I mean... There we go. I, I, <laughs> I tell you what, that on the flip side of that, um, seeing an adaptation of one of Stephen King's work I hadn't seen before that has some really, really dark themes in it, I was just like, I was watching the adaptation, I was thinking like, ah, uh, one thing about watching this, I'm expecting a fairly gross bit at the end, mm. but, and, and it's a, a show called, uh, a movie called Gerald's Game, and I was like, yeah, I'm expecting that really gross bit at the end, but I can handle that because it's just blood and gore. But all this darker stuff that's in there, I bet they don't adapt that. 
because they won't won't go there. Yeah. And they went there. And they not only went there, but they made it because it deals with child abuse and stuff like that. They not only went there, they made it even darker. And I was just like, oh, heavy. Um, but, yeah, so sometimes, like, you'd be careful what you wish for. Staying really close to the text and, and the themes, like, maybe not something you really want to see on the screen. Excellent, excellent movie. But, yeah, I was just like, well, I don't think I'll be watching this one twice. Yeah. And, well, I've an Australian example that springs to mind is Picnic at Hanging, Hanging oh. Rock. Great example. Yeah. Classic film. Classic film, and that really expanded on the themes that were barely there in the book Mm. uh, to make it a very, very thoughtful and creepy film. That, That is an excellent example. My God, did that movie creep the shit out of me. Was, uh, very quickly, that was back in the day where I was only allowed to watch the first half an hour of Sunday films. And so I saw enough to know that they were going up the rock and going to go missing, but I didn't see them going missing. And all I heard was the creepy panpipe music. And, um, yeah, that freaked me out. But, my God, there's so much, so many themes of sexual repression and colonisation and all sorts of stuff in that film that's not really there on the page. Yeah. Yeah, the film is definitely its own thing. Peter Weir just went, he went for it and used the uh, location to just speak to him and Miranda. Oh, man, those panpipes. But it's a, yeah... I mean, I'm probably being a bit repetitive, but the book is good. And it does speak to the sort of ancient earth, ancient Australia and the modern stuff or whatever. But I do think that 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 is a good example of an adaptation that is far superior to its source material. Um, I haven't seen the TV series they did, but that was one of those things like, you know, like they they could remake Jaws and that and if if they feel like they should they should you know but I don't know if I'll watch it I'll probably get around to watching it and I'll probably get around to watching the adaptation of Picnic Hanging Rock but yeah. I think you know, if they were to remake Jaws the problem would be you'd see the shark too much that was. That's the thing about the Spielberg movies, how you didn't really see the shark because shark didn't work. It was yeah. just John Williams. Yeah. The funny thing about having seen now seen a great white in the wild, it's not as fake as you actually think. Yeah. Like they are actually a pretty weird looking animal and mm. they do weird things with their mouth that don't look real. Yeah. Um, at the same time, I don't think anything should be a protected species in the, apart from great whites themselves. Um, stop killing sharks. Um, but 
you know, no, no uh, intellectual property should be or story should be protected. Somebody, you should always, you know, like it or dislike it, nothing should be never remade or never readapted. I think that's silly. Yeah, as I think as the argument goes, you know, the the original doesn't get deleted. It doesn't get replaced. You know, if the original's always available, then we can have these new adaptations. So I I have multiple versions of Sense and Sensibility, multiple versions of Emma, uh, multiple versions of Pride and Prejudice. And Persuasion and Mansfield Park. Only one of Northanger Abbey. Um, so, you know, have at it. Do Northanger Abbey. Um, and they're all interesting. Some are more successful than others. Um, but you don't delete the previous ones by making a new one never and i think if you're too protective about that sort of stuff you have to sort of have a bit of a look at yourself but um you know these things like uh, you know the all these stories all these characters sherlock holmes dracula frankenstein all these things they came from literature um you know all the all the all of Shakespeare's stuff. You should be able to adapt them. You shouldn't. It should never replace original movies. But long live the adaptation of the, the literature yeah. the, uh, of that world, and may they keep doing it as well as they possibly can with their own original ideas and thoughts and themes and stuff. And do your best, yeah. 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 Except. Pretty positive note. So maybe we'll we'll finish it there. Um, now, any word on when the return of Peppa Pig podcast? It's imminent. Yep. Imminent. Yeah. So yeah, Josh and I. Are, it's always about our um, our own availability and family stuff, and and uh, summer's never good because it's when all my kids' birthdays are. So, um, and our anniversaries and stuff. But, yeah, no, we are actually looking to, to kick back off again. I can can tell you that much. So, Excellent. So people watch the socials, watch your podcast feed for the adventures of Daddy Pig. Two Daddy Pigs. Yeah. Two Daddy Pigs. Yeah. Both of look <laughs> quite like him. So. <laughs> Oh, until he was surpassed by that, that Louis. <laughs> Louis. Oh. oh, what a great thing to be surpassed by. So. Yeah, so the other week Bunnings did a um, hammer barn, like, promotion. How wonderful is that? How fun in fun is that? Yeah. Louis the best. But we do have to explain to a lot of Americans what cricket is now. Uh, I, I, yeah, um, obviously, friend of yours, friend of mine, Eric 
Struthers and his family does a a, a, um, a great bluey podcast that I tune into every now and again, and I'm really looking forward to how they take cricket. It's it's, it's great when something's really a more than anything else is really that that of all of the episodes seems really Australian to me. So yeah. um, we'll love seeing seeing that when they do that. Well, um, so yeah, uh, Pepper Peepog on the socials. I'm that Geek Pod on Twitter. Threads. Um, I haven't set up a Blue Sky account. I probably should. Um, I'm also at Catherine Neen on Twitter. Blue Sky and Threads also, where yes, I still count down to Andor every day because every day we're one day closer to that magnificence that is Andor. Look, I will talk Andor when no one else is there. I will just talk, 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 Andor. I, because of Andor, I went right, I'm going to go into Tony Gilroy's back um, catalogue and I looked for, um, oh, God, what's the name of it? Michael Clayton was on no streaming services and, of course, no DVDs here, so I had to order a DVD from the UK or Blu-ray from the UK to watch Michael Clayton. I'm deep diving on all things Andor. I have, yes, a focus, we'll say. We'll say it's a focus, not an obsession. So thank you, Matt, and that geek pod will return. Thank you, Catherine. Good night, my little piggies.